Welcome to the continuing podcast series, The Power and Utility Surge. Uh, my name is Sal Montabano. I'm the PwC Power and Utilities Tax Leader. Uh, always glad to have another podcast here on issues impacting power and utilities companies. Today, we're going to be covering Section 163J and the final and proposed regulations that were just released a couple weeks ago uh, with respect to 163J. And as always, uh, we have a special guest this podcast. It's George Manousis, uh, who's a tax partner in our National Tax Services Group and the Federal Tax Services Practice. Hi, George. Hey, Sal. How are you? Good morning. Good to be with everyone. Thanks uh, for, for coming on, George. And, and uh, we'll be covering some of the nuances of Section 163J and the final and proposed regulations. And I'll start with a caveat, and that is the regulations and proposed regulations are very voluminous. Uh, There was an August 11th webcast that PwC produced that was an overview on all the rules. And even in that webcast, it still wasn't going to cover everything in these particular rules. So in order to keep this podcast somewhat listenable, we will not be covering everything in these 163J regulations. However, we do want to highlight some of the issues specific to power and utilities companies, some of the things that we thought were interesting uh, and maybe applicable to those listening to this particular podcast. So with that, maybe we'll talk about what 163J is. And what it is, is a limitation on the ability to deduct interest uh, from a business standpoint. So the general rule is that you're limited to 30% of adjusted taxable income. And with the CARES Act that was passed earlier this year, the 30% limitation becomes a 50% limitation, at least for corporations in 2019 and 2020. One of the reasons we're talking about 163J is that there are special rules with respect to regulated utility companies. And regulated utility companies are not necessarily subject to 163J. And in turn, if they're not subject to 163J, they do not also get to avail themselves of 100% expensing in 168K. So part of the gist of what you have to do in looking at 163J is figure out if you're subject to the special utility exception to 163J or if you're not. So with that, maybe we'll focus on proposed regulations that were issued late in 2018 that help define how to apply the utility exception and help define a special adjustment to that adjusted taxable income rule called the DAD rule. So depreciation, amortization, and depletion is an adjustment to adjusted taxable income at least until 2022 under the current law. And those particular items get added to taxable income uh, when you're calculating adjusted taxable income. So you have a higher ceiling on what may be deducted um, if you get to add back depreciation, amortization, and deduction and depletion. But with that, maybe I'll turn it over to George to, to help describe how those rules were defined in the 18 proposed regs. Yep. Thank you, Sal. Um, the operative word here in the proposed regulations in the statute is that 
you're allowed to add back any deduction for depreciation, amortization, depletion, DAD, as we refer to it as. Um, however, cost of goods sold is different than a deduction. Cost of goods sold is subtracted from gross receipts to form gross income. And then from gross income, you subtract deductions. So a literal reading of the requirements says that only below the line DAD can be added back in any DAD that is capitalized as part of cost of goods sold and recovered as cost of goods sold could not be added back because it is not a deduction. It's recovered through cost of goods sold. And it was that stringent uh, rationale that led to the proposed reg rule that you could not add back any DAD that was included and recovered as part of cost of goods sold. Now, there was a lot of commentary on that, a lot of negative commentary on that for a variety of reasons, but that Sal, was effectively what the proposed regs had said, that you were not allowed to add back to ATI any dad that was capitalized and recovered as part of cost of goods sold. That's right, George. And, uh, you know, we'll get to how that may change uh, with the final regulations. But one other thing I'm hoping you can address is the treatment on the sale of assets where depreciation was taken and what those proposed regulations provided with respect to that. Yep. So another adjustment in computing ATI is uh, taking into account kind of a recapture rule, if you will, for uh, assets that are disposed of. Now, when you claim depreciation deductions, obviously that depreciation gets to be added back for ATI, but that also reduces the basis in your asset. So let's just say I had an asset that I cost $100, and I get bonus depreciation, I now have basis of zero, that $100 of depreciation I got to add back. So I got a benefit to ATI for the depreciation. If I then sold the asset and had a gain of $100, that $100 gain, which is driven purely because it was fully depreciated, is included in ATI. So it, that gain increases ATI again. So it's as if you have a double benefit, if you will. And the government did not think that double benefit was appropriate. So what the proposed regulation said is that you have to add back the lesser of your gain or the depreciation allowance that was taken on the property. Um, very similar to recapture rules that we have under 1245. So the government did not want you to get a double benefit um, to ATI by adding back the depreciation and then getting a benefit with the larger gain, if you will. Uh, or smaller loss in computing ATI. Yeah, Georgia, and that's become pretty critical as folks are dealing with it on their 2019 returns, because now we've got, you know, the bonus coming through in 2018, which could be 100% expensing for non-regulated utilities. Right. Uh, so you may have a significant add back if you churn assets pretty frequently. Yep, exactly right especially with bonus depreciation because they'll be fully depreciated as well in certain instances. That's right. That's right. So I appreciate that, George, and, and we'll come back to you to talk about how that may change in those final regulations. Uh, but just want to describe at a high level uh, some other provisions in the proposed regulations dealing with this utility exception. And one thing the proposed regulations outline was the definition of an accepted utility which essentially mirrored the federal tax normalization rules. So if you're regulated on a cost of service or rate of return basis, then you are considered an accepted utility under 163J. 
meaning if that's the only activity that you had, your interest would not be subject to the 163J limitation. What the proposed regulations provided was a system to allow a consolidated group to bifurcate their activities between accepted activities and non-accepted activities. So they could bifurcate the net interest expense itself and the corresponding adjusted taxable income. So the revenue and expense that would go into the adjusted taxable income calculation between what would be accepted and what would be non-accepted activities. And there were a provision of de minimis safe harbors provided. So if 90% or more of your activities were accepted activities, then you would be deemed to be accepted in the entirety uh, for purposes of 163J. Now, most of the bifurcation between accepted and non-accepted activities would be done by looking at asset bases. And it was done using asset bases after calculating um, ADS depreciation on that. So you're to ignore bonus depreciation and regular tax depreciation and really bifurcate your activities and assets using ADS depreciation, unless you have inherently permanent structures, in which case you would use unadjusted basis uh, to allocate those particular assets. So it provided a overall detailed scheme around how to figure out what's accepted and what's not accepted from a utility perspective. So fast forward to today, and now we have these final regulations that were issued, like I said, a couple weeks ago, and they're generally effective 60 days after the date of publication in the Federal Register for taxable years beginning on or after that particular date. But there is flexibility with respect to that effective date. You could apply these final regulations retroactive to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. You can continue to apply the proposed regulations until the final regulations are effective. And then there's a special effective date rule with respect to this DAD deduction or uh, depreciation, amortization, and depletion that George was talking about. But before we get to that, maybe George, I'll turn to you and explain how this DAD uh, deduction was adjusted with respect to the final regs. And then maybe you can adjust, you can address the effective date for the new DAD provision. Sure, absolutely. So after getting numerous comments from the government, I'm sorry, after the government receiving numerous comments on the DAD rule and how A, uh, it wasn't necessarily reflecting the policy intent and B, a literal interpretation of the word deduction could cause some other ancillary uh, results that would not benefit the government. Um, the government did modify the rules in favor of what the commentators were asking. So at the end of the day, we now have any dad that is, uh, whether it's below the line or more importantly, capitalized and recovered as part of cost of goods sold is now eligible to be added back. Now there are times when you will have depreciation dad that is uh, incurred and capitalized as part of ending inventory that hasn't been relieved yet. Um, in that instance, you deduct the dad or add back the dad, if you will, in the year that it arises, in the year that it's allowed. So say, for example, I was a manufacturer and uh, I capitalized that into ending inventory and that inventory is still on hand at the end of this year. The depreciation that was capitalized, I do get to add that back 
And then when I relieve the inventory, I don't take it then. It's whenever the depreciation is incurred, uh, that is when I get to add it back. So good job by the government listening to the commentators um, in terms of being allowed to add back the depreciation. Technically, under uh, inventory accounting, you can it has to be an item that is otherwise deductible. So I think that's part of what got the government comfortable is that it needs to be a deduction before it even goes into ending inventory. It's capitalized. And here you needed a depreciation deduction, which gave them cover to write that rule uh, to address commentators' concerns. Um, yeah. And Sal, on the effective date point, um, the government did give us some additional relief here. As Sal noted, the effective date is essentially prospectively. However, if you relied on the proposed regulations uh, for the prior years, for 18 and 19, which did not have this favorable rule, you can use this favorable DAD rule in isolation along with the proposed regulations. That is against the grain of what the government is usually doing with all of this, all of this guidance, where usually you follow the proposed regs in totality or you follow the final regs in totality. Here, the government is allowing you to cherry pick, but they are dictating the, the pieces you can cherry pick. So again, if you use the proposed regs in 18 and or 19, you can use this favorable DAD rule and cost of goods sold if you want. Thanks, George. Yeah, very helpful and, and very uh, taxpayer favorable. You know, I think a yes. lot of our audience here will appreciate that change to the DAD rule. If you can adjust, if you can address maybe the adjustment on the disposition as well and how that may have changed in the final regulations. Yeah, so there, there was some concern that commentators had expressed that when trying to figure out the, um, when trying to determine the lesser of the gain or loss um, or the depreciation taken into account in the property, it could become a very big administrative hassle. So what the final regulations do is they require a taxpayer to subtract the greater of the data that is allowed versus allowable in kind of these post-tax reform years. So 2018 through 2021, which is when we get to add back dad, uh, if you dispose of an asset, then you must reduce your ATI by the greater of the dad that is allowed versus allowable. And to refresh folks on the specific meaning of those words, allowed is what, you, what a taxpayer actually claimed on their tax return, whereas allowable is what the taxpayer was permitted to claim on their tax return. Um, for most people, it's going to be the, the former, assuming they are doing their methods of accounting properly. Um, but some taxpayers are not doing it properly. We do have basis that is reduced for uh, regardless of if you didn't take enough depreciation on it. Um, but a simpler rule to apply. Um, unclear whether or not it will be a net benefit or a detriment to taxpayers. But regardless, it will be a little bit administratively easier, which was the government's policy goal here with this rule cell. Yeah, that's that's very helpful, George, and appreciate you covering that. And you know, I think the the treatment of depreciation, amortization, depletion could have a huge difference if you are subject to 163J. Uh, but you must keep in mind kind of this add back for that uh, on the disposition of assets and the adjustment that you you have to make for that uh, when you calculate your overall adjusted taxable income. So yeah. Very yeah, helpful, absolutely. And there's a lot of instances with taxpayers, you know, it's not limited to the traditional fixed assets, right? They give examples of how 174 amortization is eligible to be added back. So folks that have 163J concerns, 
um, want to be sure to make sure they're capturing the totality of their dad, both above the line and below the line, to make sure they're maximizing their ATI. Okay, very helpful. So with that, maybe we'll turn to some specific utility-specific issues in the final regulations. And the first thing that I would focus on is the definition of an accepted utility. So the final regulations kept the original definition with respect to cost of service rate of return regulated utilities. Those operations are definitely accepted for purposes of 163J. However, the final regulations added an optional election for what I'll call quasi-regulated utilities. And those would be utilities whose rates are established or approved by a regulatory body. If you have those sort of operations, you can elect into being an accepted utility for purposes of 163J. So you have a lot of gas pipelines, perhaps a lot of merchant generation power plants that are still somewhat regulated by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. The FERC may have oversight over the rate-making policies and the rates that are established, but they don't have cost of service rate of return oversight. And what the final regulations allow is some flexibility for companies with those types of operations to either elect in and be subject to 163J or elect out and retain the ability to claim 100% expensing on the bonus depreciation side of things. The other thing I'll point out real quickly with regard to that utility definition is that the service left themselves an option to publish a notice or revenue procedure designating a certain type of entity as an accepted utility under these final regulations. So I'm not sure how applicable that will be. I'm not sure what the purpose of leaving that out is, uh, but my sense is that they wanted to stem a flood of private letter rulings asking whether we can elect in or elect out. So they left themselves some flexibility to publish broader guidance, defining certain entities as either accepted utilities or non-accepted utilities. With respect to other features affecting utilities in the final regulations, generally the final regulations kept the bifurcation scheme that was in place in the proposed regulations. So you still have to look at whether you have accepted operations, non-accepted operations. You still look at it on a consolidated group basis. And they kept the de minimis safe harbors that were in place uh, kind of those 90-10 safe harbors that I was referring to, if you have over 90% of your operations in the accepted bucket, then all of your operations will be considered accepted for purposes of 163J. The one thing that they clarified was the ordering rules around those de minimis exceptions. So they said that basically the regulated utility de minimis exception would apply first. And what that is, is if 90% of your items are furnished or sold by an accepted business, then you're deemed to meet that de minimis exception and your entire business would be accepted. The second de minimis test in the ordering rule is the assets de minimis test. So if your allocated asset basis is over 90% in the accepted bucket, after applying those ADS and inherently permanent structure rules, then all of your activities are deemed, all of your assets are deemed to be accepted in doing the allocation. 
And lastly, you have the all taxpayer assets de minimis. If 90% of your trade or business assets are accepted, then all of your interest is deemed accepted under that de minimis test. So that's the order of those de minimis tests when you're looking at this from a consolidated group basis and trying to find out if your entire group uh, fits under the accepted or non-accepted categories or whether you, you don't fit within the de minimis safe harbors and actually have to bifurcate your activities uh, and interests based on those asset tests. One rule that was clarified uh, in the final regulations as well is a deemed asset purchase test. So let's say that you're looking to acquire a regulated utility. And most regulated utilities are acquired using stock deals. And the reason for that is if you acquire assets or do a 338H10, you typically have to step up the basis of your assets from a tax standpoint. And when you step up the basis of those assets, it eliminates the historical accumulated deferred income taxes. Well, that aided is a rate-based offset and helps reduce rates. So most regulators don't like asset deals because that historic aided would go away and rate base would go up and rates would go up. So most utilities are acquired using stock deals. However, without the asset basis step up, you kind of have a depressed asset basis when you're running this allocation to determine what's accepted and not accepted. So they added to the final regulations a provision that if you acquire a company via stock purchase and it's a regulated utility, you get to apply the allocation as if you achieve the step up in the basis of the assets. But it only applies for companies you're acquiring which have a regulated liability for deferred taxes. So that's the verbiage that's actually used in these final regulations. So a regulated liability for deferred taxes, most companies wouldn't say they have a regulated liability for deferred taxes. They simply have a deferred tax liability that's a rate-based offset. But I think we all know what the treasury means in this case. Basically, if deferred taxes work their way into rates and you acquire this company in a stock acquisition, that's the type of company that would be eligible for this deemed asset step up. The next thing I wanna to touch on is determination date rules. So under the proposed regulations that were issued in 2018, when you were trying to determine your de minimis tests and the bifurcation of interest, revenue, and expense, the proposed regulations provided that you had to do a quarterly test on your assets, your interest, and your revenue. What the final regulations provide is that you can use a beginning and end of year average instead of doing a quarterly test, so long as your assets don't change by over 20% from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. So a more friendly test in determining whether you're accepted or not accepted. The last thing I wanna address is ADS depreciation. So there's some verbiage in the preamble to the final regulations that would seem to indicate that if you make the election for a quasi-regulated utility to be treated under 163J uh, as an accepted utility, that you have to use ADS depreciation on those operations. 
I think it's just maybe inartful drafting with respect to that, because those provisions don't exist in these regulations and they don't exist in the statute. So if you elect into 163J, you can't take bonus depreciation with respect to those operations, but you are not subject to ADS depreciation. You would be subject to regular makers, just like a cost of service rate of, rate of return regulated utility that's subject to 163J. But the one thing that is clear in the final regulations is that you can't elect into 163J and also get 100% expensing or bonus depreciation in 168K. So with that, maybe we'll cut this off and, and call an end to this podcast. There are a lot of things to dive into in 163J uh, and a lot of different areas to explore. Again, I would turn you to the August 11th webcast for more of a general overview. But if you have specific questions, feel free to reach out to me and happy to address those specifically. With that, I want to thank George for joining the podcast. And until next time, thank you very much. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.